Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we're back again. Yes, of course we are. Every Sunday from uh, 7 a.m. and then 7 p.m., 1 a.m. Monday morning, 9 a.m. Wednesday, and then Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m., nine programs, nine different guests. Uh, There's something, and I'm not going to do the old Beatles thing of, you know, number nine kind of stuff. Uh, But uh, I'm excited that we have nine different opportunities to bring you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We stream live at all of those times at richarddugan.com. And then we post these interviews on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, a bunch of other locations, and and YouTube, where you can watch these conversations. I hope that you will get to know the guest a little bit more so. And then uh, let's see, what else have we got for you? We also have uh, an opportunity for you to be a part of the work that we are doing. If you'd like to help us out financially, we would be uh, gratefully appreciative of that. Uh, Our uh, PayPal account, it's there for your security as well as ours. And uh, they'll ask you for an email address to input. And it's Richard at RichardDugan.com. So hope that you will do that. And also take some time to uh, spend in in that quiet, still, calm, peaceful place we keep talking about during this, the decade of perfect vision, to listen to that still, small voice. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit as we come back with our very special guest, a returning guest, uh, not just the second or third time. He's been on a number of times before, Chuck Champlin. And the uh, last time he was on the program, we talked about uh, how to think like a molecule. That was a fun program. And, uh, you know, Chuck, we're going to have to uh, revisit that because there's so much more to talk about. But today we're going to talk about, do we call it a novel? It's uh, fiction, I guess. Uh, it, the book is entitled wand and we'll get into the title and all of that uh, that it pertains and the thoughts behind the book that we're going to talk about chuck it's great to have you back again great to be here richard thank you so much and i appreciate your enthusiasm and all your enterprise going on with your soundcloud and uh, all your interviews that you must have dozens and dozens online by now so well i did a check good friends yeah, I just checked yesterday on YouTube. I find this hard to believe, but okay, so be it. I've got over 400 interviews just uh, in the um, in, in the uh, Tell Me Your Story playlist, playlist. but I have two, uh, one other playlist that is uh, a series of interviews I did with uh, a series of authors who contributed to a couple of books that were put out uh, by a, a publishing company, Sacred Stories. And um, uh, so um, I've got uh, probably 450 just up on YouTube alone, but I'm fast approaching probably seven, 700, 800 up on uh, SoundCloud that are, as I mentioned earlier, distributed to so many different locations. And uh, uh, what I find fascinating, though, in that regard, Chuck, this is sort of a side to thing here. I'm watching the analytics on SoundCloud and there's one in for interview in particular uh, sadly, um, though yours has been getting quite a number of hits on the To Think Like a Molecule, um, there's one interview that is in the three to four, th- uh, two to three thousand listen range, but wow. it hasn't been up there that long. And, and and there is nothing that comes even close to that. And I'm over 101,000 listens since uh, January 1 of 2018 when I started 
hosting programs from that year forward. And I'm going, there has to be something wrong. That can't be right. That, that 3000, 4,000 listens with one interview in such a short time. Really? Yeah. I, and I, I can't argue. Maybe there's a problem. Maybe somebody is uh, hacking in there and manipulating, but it just, I just find that interesting. We want to talk uh, today about the magic that uh, we uh, make in this crazy world. I don't know if someone's making magic with the analytics on SoundCloud or not, but uh, this is interesting because, um, and I'm just going to read this if you don't mind. Um, uh, this is the synopsis, if you will, very brief synopsis of a gentleman by the name of Chris Walkman. Uh, and um, I take it this is a, a fictional uh, character? Yes, it is. Uh huh. All right. He has an unusual problem. He's just been given $20,000 to make the world a better place. Uh, starting right in his own hometown of Los Angeles of the 1990s. Now he's uh, he's uh, better tried uh, something for real. Uh, maybe there's a typo there, or a uh, not so little indiscretion uh, at his previous job might become a bigger issue. So, fueled by the magic of the money and his uh, overactive imagination, he uh, he sets to work hires a homeless man as a co-pilot and sets out to change things for the better. His key insight, the pen and television broadcast antennas, are ones that can still make magic in our time. Now, give us, that's the general synopsis of the book, the, the, the novel. Uh, which is not not very long, folks. It's 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 which is nice. And I, by the way, happen to have a not a hard copy, a hard cover of the book <laughs> wand. But I've often wondered about that in terms of, I mean, being in radio for over forty years, uh, working uh, at one time for a television station here in Santa Barbara, uh, and knowing that there has to be a tower to transmit the waves, whether it be radio or television, out to receivers, out in uh, the, uh, this, the landscape, if you will, to receive those signals and transmissions of whatever the information might be that is being transmitted. Are we transmit uh, receivers of a sort? And if so... Where's the trans where where is the transmission coming from that we should be listening to? I'm not sure what you mean. I presume that uh, in terms of television, obviously we watch it on our television, we watch it on our uh, cable news, et cetera, et cetera. But what we receive comes to us through our eyes as we read or to our ears as we listen to radio and our eyes as we watch television so it's our brain our minds that are the receivers and then what's interesting too is that we have the ability to choose the channels that we want uh to to tune into and mm -hmm. so that depends on our political persuasions our artistic interests our human interests so a lot of people watch CNN, a lot of people watch Fox News, because those are the channels that they feel in some ways define them. Mm -hmm. People tend to be defined by their choices of the media that they that they use. So 
but our brains are the ultimate receivers, our eyes and our ears. Uh, and then, of course, we have transmitters, and I'm using my transmitter right now. My mouth is moving away, and my body language is showing my interest and my excitement. So those become transmitters as well. And I watch you with great interest as we are on this show, and we have a my, my video and your video. So we're having a very interesting two-way conversation via Zoom. Pretty powerful new medium. It, it truly is. And of course, there are other platforms, but Zoom seems to be at the forefront, uh, especially when the pandemic hit uh, back in 2020. But I'm speaking more on a more metaphysical level. Uh, what you've stated is pretty darn accurate. Uh, absolutely. But we're not just <clears throat> receiving through our five senses these transmissions, if you will, this information. And of course, primarily the eyes and the ears. And then, of course, we send out signals through our mouth and even through our actions. <clears throat> but, you know, I mentioned earlier in the program uh, that as we got started about uh, uh, spending some time going within and listening to that still small voice. And so I think, OK, well, we're still being a we're still a uh, I'm sorry, a receiver listening to these transmissions from that still small voice from that other place that is and isn't outside of us it is but it isn't you know uh so i'm curious uh, your thoughts in that regard because it seems to me like uh this gentleman uh, chris walkman uh, the, the fictional chris walkman wants to do what both you and i i'm sure are are wanting to do and that's change the world for the better, for everybody. But then, of course, there is that whole definition of, well, what, do you, what, what is better? What does that mean? What, what, what is your vision? Uh, are we talking about uh, Star Trek's vision of the future, 23rd, 24th century? Are we talking about the Jetsons, as I grew up as a kid, thinking, oh, man, the 21st century is going to be really cool, flying cars and, and living high, high above the, the, the Earth in that regard? And it doesn't really... I mean, we're, I've, I've seen some videos of some people who have developed flying cars. But I'm speaking more in terms of uh, more of a, a spiritual or metaphysical um, uh, explanation, if you will, or dis discussion, if you will, right now about this aspect of uh, receiving as well as transmitting, but primarily receiving from the ethers, if you will. Can you talk? Uh, can you talk about that a little? Well, I don't know how that works. I think when you talk about the still small voice in your head, that is a composition of intuitions and memories and hopes and desires and family trainings and training by friends. And it's a personality. It's an inside, inside yourself, inside of us, inside of us individually. We have a personality, a mind, and a series of hopes. And that still small voice is the one that can only come, I think, from our own brains. I don't know yet where the different kind of transmissions come from that might be somehow at a mental level that we're probably not really aware of. Is Once in a while, you find people or you read in the Bible all the time, the people, people who talk about, well, God told me to do this. Mm -hmm. I tend to be a bit skeptical of that, and I tend to think that the voice came from 
that still small place in the mind, and you can subscribe, ascribe that to any sort of a personality you want. But with all of the work by scientists and religious people, I haven't seen anybody project the voice of God into our television or any place. So to me, as a skeptic, as a person who tends to believe in science, I think that those voices of God that come to people are the voices that they create inside of themselves in the same way that that still small voice in your head might say, geez, I think I better get up and get ready to go to work today mm -hmm. or I'm going to be late. And there's some amount of intention or hopefulness or describing of dreams that we all do to ourselves that come only from the brains and the chemistry that all of our memories and experiences have allowed to populate our brains and that intention that is expressed inside our heads for what we want to do. And that's what I think is interesting about Chris Walkman in this book, because he starts out the book talking about the imagination, the animator that is for him inside his mind, wanting to leap tall buildings or whatever it is he was imagining that he could do. Um, and that's just purely his imagination that's inside his head. But mm -hmm. he feels that that's a very powerful thing. And he wants to find a way to change the world for the better using that limitless of power of his imagination. Though he admits in the first pages of the book, I'm also a very timid person. I'm a person that has a hard time getting myself out of my house sometimes. I like my having my cat on my lap and my orange juice glass, and I want to be very safe. So within his mind, he's talking about how do I propel myself into creating something useful and to save the world. And then ironically, he's given $20,000 by somebody who seems to say, well, you look like a guy who's got an imagination. Why don't you take this wherewithal, $20,000, and try to make a difference? And therein lies the beginning of the book, a dream of potentially doing good and potentially having a helper. And meantime, the mystery continues. How can he really make a difference? How can he really exercise his imagination and do something great? It seems to me from your background that uh, you were um, encouraged uh, specifically at one job in particular, Walt Disney. By the way, my brother also worked for Disney uh, as I an electrical engineer, traveling all over the world uh, to the various locations where they were building the different amusement parks. Uh -huh. uh, so he's had the opportunity of living in many different places and I know of uh, that that there's a there was a department. I think it was a department, uh, but I remember hearing the uh, the the term. If I'm correct on this, and I I hope you'll uh, uh, understand where I'm coming from here. Uh, the imaginary. Uh, what was it? Uh, oh yes, no, I worked there at Walt Disney Imagineering. Imagineering. It, thank you. Yeah, Imagineering, which is a perfect description of what to me disney is about or what any one of us is about we start by imagining something that we might mm -hmm. want to do which is that pure maybe that's that quiet little voice inside our heads and then but you have to go out and engineer it to make it happen so imagineering is combines the totality of that creative process thinking of it in purely inside your head then beginning to draw it and then ultimately getting out your hammer and screws nails and wood steel to build something whatever it might be or 
to build a relationship, bring people together. That's mm -hmm. part of what Chris um, Seisman tries to do is to put together a coalition of people that he thinks may be able to help uh, change the world. Well, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but also you, uh, you've been a writer, journalist, as well as a corporate uh, communications executive at the Walt Disney Company uh, and a bicycle inventor. How, how did you, how did you uh, uh, improve upon uh, the two wheels and the pedals and the chain uh, that I grew up as a kid uh, working on myself? I, I did my own repairs for the most part. Well, I th always thought that, uh, you know, when you're pedaling a bicycle, your legs are doing the most of the work. And of course, those are your, some of your strongest muscles. But I liked the idea of adding hand power. And so I invented a bicycle, frankly, very impractical as I built it and actually realized it. But I wanted to be able to use my hands like this. And so it was a hand and foot powered bicycle. And then the uh, levers that I would pull back and forth would add to the cranks of the pedals and uh, it became and then be able to steer you just would twist your wrist like this mm -hmm. uh, and that would and it was a working model i built a working model and uh, ultimately decided that there have been enough weird bicycles made in the history of the bicycle which is about 300 years long mm -hmm. uh, and, and the, the bicycles that exist today have been proven and reduced to the most effective 10-speed uh, bicycle with uh, drop handlebars for aerodynamic advantage or mountain bikes with big fat tires that, depending on the environment that you're going to be in, the right bicycle has pretty well been proven uh, for the enthusiasts that want to do either mountain biking or uh, velodrome cycle racing or whatever. But I liked it enough and I was enthusiastic enough. I actually became president of the International Human Powered Vehicle Association, which is an association of inventors using the power of a streamlined fairing on a bicycle to make it possible to slip through the wind. And we ran a contest to see which human-powered vehicle would be able to break 65 miles an hour on human power alone. And that was broken in within a year of that prize being offered in association with the DuPont company because we neglected to realize that if you went up to 10,000 feet elevation, the wind resistance would be greatly reduced. And so that uh, speed record was broken within about a year of offering a $15,000 prize in association with the DuPont company back in the eighties. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, I was, I was not an inventor, although I will, I, I will take credit for creating what I think I never, I never patented it or anything uh, was the first um, bicycle mounted uh, cup holder. Now bear in mind, as I was bicycling in Phoenix uh, year round, especially the summertime, uh, I had one of those uh, 64 ounce soda cups with lid <laughs> and I created a holder for it that I used Velcro straps to wrap around the gooseneck of the handlebars. And then, of course, around the uh, cross beam of the handlebar to keep it stable. 
And I could literally, I could fill that thing up at the local Circle K. That's where I usually stopped or 7-Eleven. Let's give them equal time. <laughs> fill it up with soda and then off I would go. And I wouldn't have to stop anywhere along the way to get water or soda or what have you. Uh, and it worked out pretty darn well. Uh, I had a nice lid on it too. So I didn't have to worry if I did hit a bump or two, it wasn't going to splash all over the place, which was a big issue. But uh, you and I share that, but we also share something else, which I, I want to talk a little bit about because it is part of why both you and I are where we are today, I believe. Uh, I will just briefly say that uh, it was a dear woman who was a listener to uh, the radio station that I was working for when I first got into this business in 79. And she suggested uh, only a few years into my stint at Sun Sounds Radio Reading Service that I join an organization that would help me to better communicate. I mean, I had a lot of information and questions and so forth, but this allowed me the opportunity to be more, maybe more concise, although I do tend to create a series of nested questions in one statement <laughs> to my guests. But that organization was Toastmasters. And I got to tell you, I still have all of the magazines that they put out while I was there, along with a bunch of other elements, and it was the greatest time. And you are also a member of Toastmasters where you're living. That's true. That's right. I've been very active, and we're uh, in Yuba City in Northern California, north of Sacramento, and we have, we're doing a series of projects with the Toastmasters. We're going to be interviewing and uh, having a public conversation with the editor of the local newspaper up here uh, coming up in the next month or so. And so using Toastmasters to introduce our public to some civic leaders. And the editor of this paper is a hardworking guy that uh, I really look forward to that conversation with. But Toastmasters is all about being comfortable and enjoying the process of public speaking and learning to um, synthesize and contextualize and, and miniaturize your own ideas into a way to get them out most effectively to your audience. So we look forward to doing that with our in our community. Yeah, I, I still remember the, uh, what was it, the red, yellow, and uh, green uh, lighted uh, warning uh, signal that they would give you. And that was the better way to do it. I don't know whether they started out maybe using a bell or something like that, but uh, that could be very distracting. Uh, throw you off your your game, so to speak. But it was it was really very cool, and it was for me it was akin to going to junior college following six months off after graduation from high school. When I took English one hundred and one, and I remember the first day as they went through the syllabus, uh, they said, "And you will be writing five essays." It scared the daylights out of me because I don't recall ever ever writing an essay. Unless you want to count the what I want to be when I grow up in eighth grade. Uh, so I thought, OK, well, I'm taking this class and it's because I choose to. And I got to tell you, when I finally learned the formula for an essay, those five essays just came out of me without a problem. Whereas with and with Toastmasters, it has also helped. I will not say that I am proficient in the elimination of the ahs and the ums and so forth. What I try to do, and I don't know about you, Chuck, I look for if I'm going to say uh or um or something of that nature, I just try to pause 
No sound, just a pause. And that seems to work out well. There's another organization that you're a part of that I would really like to become a member of. I think it would be a lot of fun. Actually, there are two that I want to connect with. One of them that you're connected with is the Optimist Club, bringing out the best in kids in this instance. Uh, talk to us about uh, the Optimist Club and why you became a member. How long, how long have you been a member of the Optimist Club? Well, when I was in Santa Barbara, where you live, I uh, was introduced to the Optimist Club uh, through a nice fellow at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I worked. And uh, I've just always thought that optimism was one of the highest callings that our human minds can uh, live with and, and aspire to um, materialize in our, in our actions, because optimism is just always look on the bright side of life as that song that Monty Python sang. <laughs> I just uh, have always thought that that was a, a right way to do it. I mean, in reality, one needs to look out for dangers and one needs to take into consideration the full range of possibilities that may happen with any effort that you make. But optimism is really, especially putting optimism to, into the minds of little kids, which is really what the Optimist Club is all about, is trying to give kids a sense that their lives can amount to something, that they can really um, rise above fears or, or challenges that they have in their life to uh, actualize their potential. So I've always thought that that was a noble calling. And for any person at any point in their lives to figure out how do I get over doubts, fears, problems, uh, roadblocks, and continue to actualize my own vision for the best in the world. And I think that's what uh, a lot of what wand is about too. The book wand, I think, is saying how can we use the power of the pencil, the pen, the television to create a better world. Instead, we seem to have so many people wanting to weaponize divisions and discussions, and I find that very distressing because that seems to be the uh, antithesis of finding uh, bringing out the best in kids and the best in our in our lives. So hopefully, we can figure out how to be optimists and how to be realists as well. Realistic optimists. Well, you know, in your work, you, you also promote uh, the hopeful idea that every human being has creative contributions to make uh, that will increase peace and understanding in the world. And I know that, uh, uh, you know, I'm with you on that, uh, you know, and uh, we're all looking for different ways to, to facilitate that effort. Uh, and it's some days it's easier than others, isn't it? Absolutely true. Yeah. Well, your show has been just a very good, uh, iconic uh, way of bringing out voices and people bringing out the best in humans, finding what their truth is, finding what their optimistic uh, offering is to the world. And that's certainly what I'm about with writing wand as well. So let's let's go through some of the aspects of the book one, which again is uh, a Chuck's uh, one of Chuck's uh, uh, offerings, if you will. It is available on Amazon if you'd like to get it yourself a copy. Uh, and you want to know something, Chuck? I was looking at the cover. Of course, the word wand is right there, but I was looking at the background, and across the top of the uh, front cover uh, is uh, basically the skyline. Is that a particular skyline, or is it just something uh, sort of a composite? No, that's the downtown of Los Angeles, because the book is set in Los Angeles right. in, in the early 90s. The uh, the towers, and I'm just going to show the picture of the book, those are what are called the Watts Towers. 
in South Central Los Angeles. They were built in, the, I think, the 30s by an uh, Italian immigrant named uh, Simon Rodia. And he just put up rebar and then covered the rebar with plaster and cement and shells and little found things that he uh, picked up along the railroad tracks locally. And they are still in Los Angeles. The city actually at one point tried to pull them down uh, because they were afraid they were going to fall down. And lo and behold, they couldn't pull them down. They were so strongly made that uh, the city said, OK, we're leaving them there. And they are now a pretty significant tourist attraction in town, the Watts Towers. Uh, as an artistic, iconic creation by this Italian immigrant who just thought little by little he built them up and welded them together. Uh, and, they, and they're just such a very, very beautiful, creative effort. And then I actually use the reason they're on the cover of the book is that uh, Chris Walkman uh, tries to hold a video teleconference between Watts, which is thought to be a downtrodden, mostly African-American community, and he links by satellite uh, technology uh, near UCLA and rather well-to-do Westwood, getting groups of people in both locations to talk to each other. And that was mm -hmm. something that was created before Zoom, before the Internet uh, in the 80s as a, as a real-life example of doing that kind of person-to-person uh, -person, um, connection between Los Angeles and New York where people suddenly came upon television screens and they were talking to people in the opposite city. What are you doing here? You're talking, you're in New York, you are? You guys are in Los Angeles? That's amazing. And they were, this was long before Zoom. Uh, and it mm -hmm. was a, a, yeah. a demonstration called Hole in Space. And the artists that created that, Sherry Rabinowitz uh, and her husband, were... Uh, iconic and came to talk to me when I was working at Walt Disney Imagineering. Uh, and I thought they were some of the most exciting Imagineers that I had run across when they created that hole in space uh, between Los Angeles and New York. Well, first of all, I want to ask these towers, these are, are these, these are not transmission towers or are they, Did, were they used to transmit uh, signals, radio or television? No, no, not at all. They were uh, purely artistic creations. Uh. Okay. I don't know whether anybody has ever tried to transmit something from them that might be possible to do, but they are covered by uh, cement and plaster and uh, all sorts of other odds and ends. They're artistic creations yeah. by this artist, uh, Simon Rodia. I have to I have to make a trip down to Los Angeles to see these towers. That they, those they just look fascinating. The designs. There are two towers on the right hand side of the uh, middle to right hand side of the uh, pay uh, cover of the book. And they have these um, almost heart-shaped little designs at at uh, the levels as you work your way up between the two towers that are, look like they're connected by horizontal um, cables or uh, rebar or pipes or what have you. But they're mostly just, made of rebar, correct, right? Yeah. And I, I have to chuckle. I'm sure other people are chuckling, too, when uh, the city said, no, oh, we need to bring those down there. They're unsafe. And they couldn't. You know, it's like. Okay, there you go. Then they're not coming down. Very nice. Right, um, right. I, 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 I just find this fascinating. And of course, I've worked at a number of radio stations. Uh, one in particular, uh, the second station that I worked for, I actually worked at the transmitter site where we had a single stick, as they called it. Uh, wand would have been kind of cool, too. And eventually, um, near the end of my tenure there, uh, they brought in a second tower in order to uh, go directional, AM directional, to send the signal 
uh, towards the Phoenix area. The, the city uh, of license was Tolleson, Arizona. And we were literally uh, bordering the Southern Pacific railroad tracks. So while we're doing our job inside and we're far enough from the railroad tracks, the, the, the sound did not interfere with programming. Um, but it was really kind of an interesting place to, uh, to work. And there was about seven acres. And, um, I used to walk over to the tower, which was of course, surrounded by a wooden fence to keep people out and protect them and so forth. And I would just look up at this thing and go, boy, I don't want to have to, because every so often you got to paint them. Um, and if the lights go out and you have to have these lights at the top of these towers to, so that, uh, aircraft don't run into your, uh, into your tower. Uh, if it goes out, somebody's got to climb that stick and replace those light bulbs. And I think we're talking maybe, I don't know, 250 feet, something like that. Um, and then, of course, you had the guide wires. And the biggest issue for us with these towers uh, was the issue that people would come onto the property, uh, unbeknownst to us. And, you know, we tried to keep our eyes open, but, you know, we didn't have sophisticated alarm systems. And they would want to pull up the copper strips, the grounding strips that came out from the tower, not realizing that they were risking their lives because there was the real possibility that they could be electrocuted. Um, but I, I find this whole aspect of learning about uh, broad, you know, in, in the broadcast industry, learning about the transmission. I had to take a, 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 a course uh, to uh, get my third class license, which unfortunately I did not get because that aspect of uh, the um, rules and regulations, if you will, was eliminated in the early 80s when we went to take the test. Huh. Uh, but I still have the manual, uh, if you will, uh, for that. And I have the little postcard, the little uh, uh, box top, if you will. It was not much bigger than a business card that shows that um, I have my... It's not a third class license. It's just I have permission, if you will, to operate the, the the given station. So I still have all of that. But it was fascinating to learn about the transmission between AM and FM and the way the waves worked. Uh, enough of that. Let me ask you about the book Wand, Wand, which is available uh, on Amazon by Chuck Champlin. Uh, we are very grateful for the time that he has, is giving us here on this program. We've had him on before talking about his uh, his latest work, which uh, we talked about in our last program. Uh, Think like a molecule, which was fascinating. And we'll have to revisit that and and expand uh, more on on that conversation. But talk to us a little bit about some of the the experiences that this young man, Chris Walkman, had. Uh, I mean, I would be elated at being handed. And of course, this is back in 1990. So, you know, I, I would venture that, or the 90s, I should say, that $20,000 in uh, uh, the, back then would probably be akin to, I don't know, 100000 200000 something like that uh, in today's dollars, maybe less. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, share with us a little bit about uh, some of these experiences and uh, um, how, if he was, how he was actually able to change not so much the world on a global level, but how he was actually able to change lives. Or if you don't want to give away the contents of the book, how do you go about changing the lives of people around you? Um, shall we put it in this context, Chuck? With, shall we say, their consent 
or at least with their unspoken permission because they choose to hang around you and you're going to affect their lives. Well, what uh, what happens in WAND is that uh, Chris Chris Walkman does receive this mysterious grant of $20,000, and it's really a mystery most of the way through the book as to what uh, he's expected to do with that. So he's, uh, they said, go ahead and save the world, you know, and it's sort of a, it was a fanciful idea, but it, but I thought it kind of summed up what a lot of us feel is that, well, if, if people would just listen to me, I could probably save the world. I know how to solve the problems or I, with my philosophy of life. Uh, and, you know, you see a lot of different philosophies on life between, uh, NPR and uh, CNN and Fox News and so on. We've got a pretty divisive sense of what the, what we need to do in, in our country between left and right and red and blue as to what the right way to solve the world's problem is. But any particular individual thinks that he or she has got a good idea. So I just thought it was an interesting concept to imagine that this guy, Chris Walkman, who describes himself as having a very vivid imagination and really can imagine things happening that he gets this twenty thousand dollar offering to try and save the world well he does run this hole in space experiment to connect a more impoverished part of town with a more well-to-do part of town to try and create a dialogue he's a little disappointed to realize the next day that it probably didn't really change that many minds but he did take some action mm -hmm. and then is on uh, on the track to try and find other ways to uh, to change the world. And he runs across a group that is using mirrors to reflect light onto a, uh, the logo of a big oil company in downtown Los Angeles. And with all of the concentration of the mirrors pointing their little circles of sunlight at the plastic sign from the oil company, it manages to melt some of the sign. And so he thinks, well, wait a minute, that's a pretty violent, negative, destructive form of trying to change the world. And so he's a little nervous about seeing what those folks are doing. So it, he runs, he's sort of following his own intuitions and trying to understand what people are doing to change the world. And, and he starts something called Wand Enterprises, which is, he hopes, will be a positive uh, force for, for change. And uh, so that's sort of the denouement, the conclusion of the book is where they begin to really crystallize their own sense of how we can make a difference. But uh, but there's a lot of lot of questions in the book about, you know, what are the right ways to try and affect change and how do you how can you really work as an individual to save the world? It's a little inconclusive as to whether it really saves the world at the end of the book. But there are some people that are that he really brings together to uh, try to be a force for good for changing for changing the world so it was sort of acting out my own sense of how one might uh, project oneself into the world and that's what I found interesting about writing the book is that start another chapter is like well what would this guy do next if I were that guy what would I do next so sort of writing my way in an imagineering sort of way through one opportunity after another to try and uh, start again mm -hmm. every day to, to change the world for the better. Yeah. Using the power of we... pencil and the pen and the television antenna. He does go and work with a television studio in town to try and get them to help broadcast 
good news out into the world. Well, I know enough of being in this business for over 40 years that um, unfortunately, uh, good news doesn't sell. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads, right? That's uh, as they say, and, and which is unfortunate, but that's just the fact. Uh, also, when it comes to advertising, because uh, that's also huge in especially on radio and television, but also on the Internet where you're bombarded, whether you've asked for it or not. It's like when you turn on the TV uh, and let's say uh, I'm watching and, and I'm, we have the commercials injected between the in the programs on Hulu. All right. When I go to Hulu and I go to a program or a movie. I already know I'm going to see commercials. Now, before all of this on-demand stuff came along and we only had three networks, that's what happened. You would see a program, they'd go for five, 10 minutes, take a break, go to commercials, try to sell you something, come back, continue the program and so forth. Well, nowadays, the programs themselves, you don't even need advertising outside the program because they have what they call product placement, you know, and they're trying to sell it to you through the program you're watching. And, and, and I don't know, maybe there's a certain level of subliminalism in there, uh, to, 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 uh, to make that happen. But I'm wondering how we, from your perspective uh, as well, you know, as a journalist and, and so forth, a writer, how do we make or create a, a positive news source and not not one that is pushing a particular product or service because I've seen you've seen those news stories, all right, where they're actually it's like they're turning it into a news story, but in in reality, it's not really a news story. It's uh, promoting this particular company's product or service, you know, uh, couched in a, a news story. But how do we create an environment that makes? Uh, uh, some of these positive news stories and I'll, I'll give you an example. If you've ever watched some of the YouTube shorts, the short videos uh, where people are doing these social experiments out on the street where people are asking for money. Uh, I need, I need to get bus fare here and bus fare there. And the first person to help them and give them what they have, uh, they turn right around and say, well, uh, this was just a social experiment. Let me give this back to you. And then they might hand them a hundred bucks a thousand, ten thousand, uh, they will take them to the store and buy them whatever they need, clothing, food, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they're showing acts of kindness, which I love watching because it inspires me. That's the kind of good news story that I like to see. But how do we how do we market that to where people are going to want to watch it? I've never seen that. That sounds like a lot of fun. It sort of sounds uh, um, like uh, this is your life or uh, or some of those. Uh, there was a show back in the 50s, I think, that was sort of like uh, like that man on the street. Yeah. Sort of mm -hmm. and surprising people. I, you know, it's a conundrum to me is how we learn to all get along. You know, as Rodney King says, can't we all just learn to get along? Exactly. It seems like we have such a serious uh, psychic divisions in our in our society but i've seen plenty of advertorials on uh, tv where the latest blender is being well now it cuts it chops it dices it slices <laughs> you know? we've all seen those kind of advertising yeah, yeah. but 
you know, we're in an advertising culture for better or for worse, you know, sure. the latest, uh, latest, greatest uh, car. And, you know, we're trying as a culture now to, you know, understand that global warming is such a deep crisis for our human civilization. Mm. And people are arguing the pros and cons of electric cars or do we have hybrid cars? And, you know, I drive a Prius myself and I love that innovation but we've got a lot of innovation that needs to happen in our planet if we're going to figure out how to not burn it up and not destroy our civilization with the, with the global warming. And it's pretty dire. Uh, but I don't know what, you know, it's just, I, I do have a lot of confidence that with 8 billion of us on the planet and the amount of human ingenuity in those 8 billion brains, we should be able to come up with um, solutions that can really make a difference. But sometimes... It seems like brains are working against each other and the net result is zero. Sometimes it's all the force is pushing in opposite directions and doesn't create any forward motion. Yeah, I, I hear you on optimistic that. Optimistic that it's actually a better result going on right now. Than, yeah, that's one of the things, too, that I find so fascinating. Obviously, um, right now I am resisting, for example, A.I., Every time I, I get a, a message from the various uh, people or websites that I do business with or I'm connected to like SoundCloud or Spotify or um, uh, YouTube for that matter or some of the others that I, I, I have connections with and they will give this option. I mean, Zoom actually has a uh, an option to to for you to have a uh, an AI companion and I'm going no, I don't need a virtual companion. I've got plenty of others like Chuck and <laughs> Leslie and my wife and and the people that I work with and and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, what was it? Oh, and recently it was just released uh, this. Uh, I think it was like a seven to ten minute audio record uh, audio of uh, an AI that created a uh, supposedly a George Carlin uh, stint, if you will. Skit, yeah. Well, first of all, I heard it on a number of occasions. It doesn't sound anything like George. <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, and uh, that's the biggest problem right there is it doesn't sound anything like uh, the George Carlin I know. And I've been watching the old Johnny Carson clips with George. I've been watching some of his older uh, materials on YouTube, um, uh, you know, where he maybe had his special or he was a guest on a particular program. And I, I just, I just think, wow, why, why do we need uh, this? And I'm thinking, hey, look, pal, um, maybe this is part of my OCD or something like that, uh, Chuck. I want to do it myself. All right, I, I don't need any input from some artificial intelligence. Uh, first of all, it's artificial. It's not real intelligence. All right, that would be my first <laughs> statement. Um, but I enjoy. For example, if I'm I'm working on my book, which I'm going to send you in this next mailing. Oh, very good. Uh, I, I I don't need any help writing it. Plus the fact that the AI didn't live it in terms well, you of. Know what I, you know, I under, very well understand your concerns about the artificial intelligence. But I would say that uh, that is just the nature of our massive global intelligence is that such things. I mean. I think people felt like when the nuclear bomb was uh, invented in in 1945, uh, that would that looked like the beginning of the end for civilization. And luckily, so far, we've been able to 
uh, avoid annihilating ourselves as a, as a planet. So to me, the AI is sort of on that level. It looks like a doomsday invention that may drive civilization out of business, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I have a feeling that, uh, as the optimist in me says, you know, we will understand the dangers and we will manage those dangers and uh, as best as best we can. But artificial intelligence, to me, does offer a pretty massively useful uh, input into our civilization's survival, as long as we can corral and diffuse the negative side of it. Now, it may be just like with the atomic bombs is that we will scorch our planet into non-existence using artificial intelligence, but just the way we have not yet blown up the planet uh, with the atomic bombs, I'm hopeful that our intelligence will win the day and help us use artificial intelligence for good and that mm -hmm. we will not let it run away and destroy the civilization. So who knows when the aliens arrive a thousand years from now and find find a dusty empty <laughs> planet, they'll say, well, it looks like they didn't quite get it right. <laughs> so, well, but, and of course, the sad fact, too, is that uh, if if this indeed is what's going to happen, well, uh, we've been here before, according to some folks, that this won't be the first time that we've blown ourselves into oblivion. Uh, there is evidence on the planet uh, that we've done it a number of times before. Uh, we had Greg Braden on, not well, several years ago, talking about this very thing and what they found uh, in, um, I want to say, uh, somewhere near Pakistan, where they found this huge desert area uh, that looked like a sheet of glass. And huh. then, of course, you start theorizing, well, what would have to happen to turn this sand, this silica, into glass? How hot does it have to get? You're talking, you know, several thousand degrees. Well, what would cause that? Well, you know, you're you're talking about uh, atomic or nuclear uh, types of um, devices and so forth. So, anyway, uh, we hope we don't do that. We really do. <clears throat> By the same token, I do have to tell you the story of that when I was uh, working for the religious station and of course, hearing the same stories over and over again about the end of the world and, and the second coming and all this stuff. And I was there for 15 years and I was getting so bored even after five or six years of hearing the same story that of course has been repeated for over, you know, over 2000 years, supposedly. And I said, is there anything I can do to help facilitate the, uh, the, 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 the these events you're talking about? Can I, is there something I can do to help it along? Because I'm really tired of this story. Yeah, I really am. I, I'm just bored out of my mind. I, I would like to. And so that's why now where I am today, I and mean, you as well, I'm going, you know what? I don't care about that story. I'm going to write a new story regardless, you know, uh, and 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 hopefully we can we can turn that corner, so to speak. I'm not going to say that uh, it will change the course of history because I don't know what the course is. I've always hated that phrase in documentaries. And this event changed the course of history. Really? You have a crystal ball and you can see into the future what, what was going to be and now this changed that? I, I just find that um, uh, laughable when, when they use that. But well, we don't know what the exact change will be, but it's certainly artificial intelligence does look like a game changer, as they sure. say. Oh, absolutely. 
you know, and so it's the same with atomic bombs, you know, it was yeah. it, it, international diplomacy never had that ultimate threat as part of, you know, destroying the planet uh, yeah. before in the, in the conversations. Yeah. What I find fascinating, Chuck, is uh, this, this, this aspect of, uh, and it's probably Einstein's uh, theory of insanity, they're doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Um, and that seems to, we're still in that mindset. But I think he he was also the one who said that you cannot, uh, uh, you know, you cannot solve a problem or, you know, what have you with the same consciousness that created it. Uh, so the minds that are still thinking about how, OK, we're going to have to blow the, the other people into oblivion in order to have peace on the earth. They're not the ones who are going to make the change unless their consciousness changes, unless they raise it. Do you have any particular ways that you have found that work for you in, shall we say, raising your own personal consciousness uh, and, and maybe, so to speak, opening up your mind to new and diverse ideas? Well, and two things. One is that I try to read a lot and, uh, you know, I subscribe to the New York Times. I've been a journalist and I find that to be the pinnacle of journalistic excellence, you know, with uh, sharing all the news that's fit to print. But I think my number one tool is the magic wand. You know, I want I just pick up a pen and start writing stuff. And, and uh, uh, I wrote this book, Wand, with an idea. What can can all of us do with a pen to to create a, a better world, but just exploring that small, still voice in our mind by writing it with a pen out onto the paper. And I've got a whole stacks and stacks of papers that I've written, and some of it led to Think Like a Molecule, some of it led to Wand, and some of it hopefully is going to lead to some more books that I'm still going to write while I'm uh, still here on the planet. But I just, I want to be an exemplar of, a, and the Toastmasters does this too, trying to find ways to get uh, my voice and our voices uh, talking about ways that we can survive and ways that we can help each other and ways that we can prosper as a civilization instead of trying to destroy ourselves. So right. just keep writing, keep writing. And I would tell that to you, Guy, get your book done and send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Matter of fact, uh, when we're finished with this interview, I will locate it on my uh, portable drive uh, and I will uh, I will send it to you. So we certainly that, have uh, a lot of choices to very make. Thing. Hang on one moment here. Let me uh, do that right there. And um, this is, to me, a, a fascinating conversation. And certainly we could go on for, for some time. And I, I am one of those optimists. Um, let me, I'm just curious. I know what goes on in Toastmasters. I, you know, I've been to, to I think I was a member for a couple of years. Um what goes on in an optimist meeting? Uh, do you meet once a month, once a week, and 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 do your thing, or what 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 happens? Well, we have an optimist club north of Yuba City, up in uh, Oroville. Uh, Oroville, or is uh, that was kind of part of the gold mining territory because uh, Oro is gold in Spanish. But Oroville uh, has a very very active uh, active club, and it's all about finding activities for the kids uh, to expand their world and to especially help kids that are in need. So that's basically planning good activities for uh, to do with children and to help them out, take them on trips, take them to museums, take them fishing, whatever, and just 
try to provide some more adult experience that's uh, kindly and safe and, and uh, supportive uh, to help children's minds develop and to help build a sense of the pos positive possibilities in their lives. And that's what the uh, heart of the optimist organization is, is that life can be good if you work to engineer it that way. And so getting adults that care about children, care about their safety, uh, is really what the optimist clubs are all about. Mm. And it's a going organization, you know, it's, a, it's actually worldwide, uh, very active groups in uh, New Zealand and Australia and Europe and so on. <clears throat> so it's an international organization of thinking, how do we uh, bring out the best in kids? That's the motto. Mm. Well, very good. That's our future, of course. That is the, that is the future. Kid children are going to be uh, tending our graves, you know. <laughs> uh and there's there's more truth in that than uh, than you probably know folks uh although what i'm finding interesting too my friend is that even that particular industry uh the 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 uh, shall we call it the the future funeral funeral industry uh is is shifting and changing because i'm i'm hearing more and more and to me this is uh rather interesting because of what's happening is that more and more people are opting out of being put in the ground and having their remains cremated. My father, I think my uh, eldest sister, when she passed, uh, I don't know about my best friend and some of the other folks that have passed in my life, but I know that I hear this uh, more often than not that they, you know, because uh, for example, if again, going to the Christian philosophy, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And right. that's, that's where we came from. And that's where we're going. So what's the big deal with, uh, you know, cremating the, the physical form because you can't take it with you? Well, I've also heard this new uh, idea that some people are being planted in the ground with just a very flimsy pine box and having a tree planted with them so that they can help fertilize a, a tree. It's kind of a beautiful idea as well. I mean, I think the uh, cremation, you know, is, uses such a vast amount of energy, uh, but mm -hmm. so does burial in a box digging up a, a piece of the ground and leaving a box in there for hundreds and hundreds of years what's the point of that you know doesn't yeah. do any good i like the idea of feeding a tree i i like that too i think that's a great way to go um and and, th and then of course there's there's another aspect to all of this um uh, from an anthro anthropology uh perspective and i've i've been watching some of these documentaries uh, about some of the uh, uh, ruins and so forth and the pyramids that they're investigating in Egypt in particular. And the question that I have for the anthropologist is, how old does a cemetery have to be before you can start digging up the relatives? I, I mean, it's like, where is the respect for that people's culture and, 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 and its traditions and so forth when you go in there, you dig up this stuff and then you haul it away to, I don't know, put in a museum or it gets stolen and then they start selling on the black market. At da, 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 da. I just I just find it's like, OK, so what's the deadline? You know, is it 100 years? Is it 500 years? Is it a thousand? What, what's because I'm sitting here going, because if there is no deadline, let's go dig up the Santa Barbara uh, cemetery or uh, in Phoenix, the, you know, the, the, the local cemeteries there, let's dig those up and see what we'll find, uh, you know, which to me is, is utter nonsense and disrespectful to not just the individual that you're digging up, but also to the family, the, 
the the folks oh, who course. are left behind. That's right. Well, the one yeah. thing about uh, the uh, cremation is that you you know destroy so totally the DNA, the the physical uh, remnants of the person. And I, it, what's interesting is to uh, see the discoveries and the understandings that uh, we learn about past generations when you're able to do forensic analysis of the remains of people that maybe were you know living in the, in the renaissance in europe a thousand years ago whatever to you know what kind of dental uh processes did they have mm -hmm. what sort of food did they eat at that time just being able to understand the uh the physical nature of existence at that time simply by looking at the remains and i again in the new york times science section i'll be reading stories about discoveries that people have made about the olden days uh based on <laughs> analysis of, uh, of, of of remains but when you uh burn them all up it's just so much yeah. evidence of what life might have been like is, is gone back in the day as the phrase goes back, back in, in the, the day country. or in my day uh <laughs> i i still chuckle at dana carvey's a grumpy old man from saturday night live well in my day we did this and we did that and we did the other thing and it hurt like crazy but we <laughs> liked it uh, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, it's funny. And I, I, as I have gotten older, uh, chronologically, uh, I find myself sometimes, you know, looking back at the way things were going. Yeah. Well, back in the day, I used to bicycle all over Phoenix and Scottsdale and Glendale. And I even made a few trips down to Tempe and, and then my first wife and I on a tandem bicycle, we did a 60 mile bike ride, which was more than that, because in order to even start, you had to get to the starting point, which was somewhere in the center of town. And we lived out in the West Valley. So we had to leave an hour or so earlier before the whole thing started. And we've already put 10 or 15 miles <laughs> Uh, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and yeah, the, the, the days that we have lived and the th experiences that we have had many of them are quite memorable uh we're fond of them we like to um, maybe go back every once in a while in our own minds and our own imaginations and i guess uh, the question i have for you in that regard is is as we've been uh, talking here is um and maybe i've answered my own question but i would love your perception of this and that is uh they say uh that um uh we need to learn from history and and one of my guests said what what is it that we're supposed to learn from history? Why is it important for us, you know, setting aside what you've already stated, to go back and look at the way uh, other people lived and the way they did things? Because we're here in the 21st century and we're doing things so much differently. And some would think, say maybe even so much better. And some would say not so much. But what's your what's your observation, your perspective on that? Well, I think it's the same question. Why would you ever study, take a history course? You know, it's just understanding where we came from, uh, what com what things are common to our humanity from thousands of years ago. I mean, the idea that the story of Jesus 2,000 later, 2,000 years later is so meaningful to us tells us that there are things that happen in history that are going to be with us forever. So I, I just think it's a beautiful thing, an understanding evolution, how do things change, you know, um, mm. and, uh, you know, comparing something old with something current, you know, definitely the world is changing. So, so history, just looking back in history teaches us a lot about how we got 
to where we are today. So I think it's a worthy thing, but yeah. so is understanding things like, uh, you know, the understanding that in since the 1950s, what we've come to understand about DNA is so amazing. It's such an advance, uh, but understanding the, the way that that discovery happened can tell us about how new discoveries might happen. So to me, it's just important to study history. And I'm, uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. The book Wand is the title uh, of uh, this particular uh, fiction, fictional story of Chris Walkman. And uh, it's written by our guest, Chuck Champman and uh, Champlin. And we're talking uh, about, uh, well, as we often do on these programs, we kind of go over here and then we go over here and then we go over there. And it, uh, it's just very interesting because uh, uh, it's been a while since you and I have had an opportunity to get together and chat, even outside of the confines of uh, this program in particular, uh, because uh, they've always been fascinating conversations uh, when we talk of especially uh, the ramifications that a lot of uh, these things have on where we're going. And sometimes not just as a civilization, but as an individual, spiritually, it's like I think about this from time to time. Where'd my dad go? Where'd my sister go? Where'd my best friend go? What are they doing? And as a matter of fact, that's kind of what goes through my mind when I hear about somebody passing. I wonder what they're experiencing right now. Now, I've had some guests on who have their own explanation uh, of what happens next. My favorite, of course, is the the conversations I've had with... Uh, a local gentleman, a good friend of mine, who uh, takes you into what's called uh, LBL, Life Between Lives Hypnotherapy. And oh, wow. uh, he took me through that. And it was fascinating um, what I uh, be, uh, came in touch with through that uh, that process. Just It was extraordinary. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we went back to my life before this one, and I was able to actually just sit down, one one day, uh, after all the stuff that I've been going through in my life, sat down, put my feet up on the rails, kicked back this chair against the the outside wall of of my uh, log cabin, and I just said, "It's a good life." I tilted my hat back and I just left. And it's like, boy, could we just all do that? You know, don't have to go through a bunch of trauma. You know, it's traumatic enough coming into this world. I mean, you know, uh, but. Uh, uh, you know, it'd be nice just to just to sit back and say, I'm going to go now. OK. And um, it's really unfortunate that that we have a society right now in many quarters that will not allow us to leave when we want to leave. It's like I can leave this interview anytime. I can just say I'm going to end this meeting right now and be gone and nobody will say a word. But if I choose to leave this world. OK. Oh my gosh, there's going to be just the biggest stink. And that's like, well, wait a minute. I thought one of the inalienable rights was life and the liberty to do with my life what I want, you know, that kind of thing. And that's another subject for another program. But uh, I, uh, I, um, I, I digress of sorts, uh, but I want to thank you, Chuck, for uh, being here on the program. And we look forward to having you back again to uh, talk more about uh, a lot of the other things that uh, are going on in your own mind and uh, and and uh, what's happening in your world. And it's always been a pleasure to uh, converse with you. 
Richard, it's a great, I really admire your enterprise with your radio programs, your interview process, and it's been an honor to do an interview about a wand with you and about my earlier book, Think Like a Molecule, and I cannot wait to review them on your, on your site and uh, look forward to doing that. You are Absolutely. a great man, and I appreciate knowing you, Guy. Well, thank you. I appreciate knowing you, too, and uh, you also are a great man. It uh, sort of goes along the lines of that one song that I wrote. I don't know if uh, I sent you a, a link to it or not. I, I wrote it about three years ago uh, when I was going through some stuff. And it's basically, I'm a good man doing the best I can. There you and I are. have to keep, sometimes I have to re keep reminding myself of that because stuff comes up and it's like, Oh, and uh, Hey, just calm down. You're a good man. And you're, you're doing everything you can do. And you're listening to that still small voice as I talk about many times on this program. And I thank you folks for listening to and watching. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world where we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices. Don't make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, video cast, love to lol. Jeanette, I am still listening. Dad, continue to be happy because I am to my friend Smokey. Hey, I'll see you on the other side. And to my dear friend Zorro, aho. Aho. Uh -huh.